My name is Annie Bola and I am very, very excited and I feel very honored to be launching this book with you, Gogs. Um, I know that this book has been such a long time coming. I can't believe I have a physical copy in my hands. Um, so I'd like to start just by you talking through the the seed of this idea and the process of this writing this book. Why this book and why now? Okay, I think, okay, before we do that, I feel like we didn't introduce you like appropriately. <laughs> so Danielle and I have been friends for many years. In fact, I think at this point, it's like half our lives. Um, mm. We met as like little kiddos at university many, many years ago. Um, and over the years, I think Danny's become more than just one of my closest friends. You are someone I have learned a great deal from. You're someone I have deep respect for. You're someone whose work and words I reflect on. That has been quite important, I think, in the journey of even getting to the point where I publish a book. And I mention this in my acknowledgments that you are one of the people from whom I've learned a great deal. And so I think when it made sense that, well, when it was time to have this conversation, I thought, you know, why not it be one of the people I respect the most who also happens to be one of my good friends. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm really excited that we are able to have this conversation because, yay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's, you know, that's, that's so nice to hear because you are somebody I so deeply respect and I feel like, Every time I spend time with you, I learn more. And spending time with this book, I feel like my mind has been expanded in so many different directions. The amazing thing as someone who knows you and who reads this book is that um, at some points I can hear you speaking um, so clearly. Mm -hmm. And that's such a wonderful way to be a part of the conversation with someone because I've been thinking about the idea of reading as a conversation. Um, and a dialogue and it was it's just such a such a remarkable thing to be in dialogue with these ideas that you've put forward with the women that you name in this book yes. so I feel exactly the same way about you um, and now I'm going to return to my question <laughs> this book and why now <laughs> so I think now is because Sure. I don't know why now, because part of me, I spend a lot of time thinking about I'm publishing a book in the middle of a pandemic. Is this the right time for this book? Is this the right time for the stuff I hope to have discussions about with this book? But I have been thinking about this book for some time now. And there have been different points in my life where I thought that's a story I want to tell. So you know, I tell the story of how I think three years ago I wrote a column for the Mail and Guardian. It was for Women's Month and I specifically wanted to focus on the Federation of South African Women because mm -hmm. I thought they were so interesting. Here was this group of women in the 1950s, so kind of in the height of apartheid, who decided they wanted to create a broad-based women's movement. Um, and they were quite clear in their demands that they wanted women to have political, mm -hmm. social, legal equality which is an idea which, like, half a century later remains so important. It's so, it's such a thing that many of us are still, when we're thinking about freedom or the kind of society we want to live in, I thought about the work of the Federation and how that remains relevant. 
Um, years ago, when I was still working in newspapers, there was the story of uh, the, the murder of Nopila Kumalo in Cape Town, who was a sex worker who was beaten to death in the street um, by someone who at the time, everyone called a celebrated artist. And I really thought about what is it about the story? There's something about the story that tells us something about society. So I've been thinking about her story and I wrote a piece around the history of sex work as one of the pieces I did while in newspapers. So there've been moments where I've thought there are bits of history, there are bits of the story that I'm working on now that I think are really relevant. And then finally it came together as a book. And some of the book actually became a lot clearer as I was writing. I had a particular idea. And then once I was in the process of putting it together and speaking to people and doing research, other things became obvious. Um, and I think, look, now is because I think I'm finally over the fear of publishing because I think putting stuff out into the world is terrifying. And I say this as someone who's, you know, I've worked in newspapers and magazines and radio and TV, but a book is something different. I'm, I'm used to like putting stuff out for public consumption, but I think this was different. Um, and so, yeah, and so here we are after I think kind of years of work, years of thinking about it, and it's finally come together into what I hope is, you know, a useful piece of literature that contributes. And also, you know, I've been reading different things. I reference a lot of people that I've read whose work got me thinking about this work. And I think it's a combination of those things, my own writing, my own reading, and here we are. Mm. And I think that that connects to something that I really wanted to speak about when you were speaking in the introduction about your three aims for the book. So for everybody out there who hasn't read the book yet, the book is primarily about equality and about thinking things through a gendered lens there are eight chapters that touch on land, domestic work, GBV, sex work, the youth movement, and children's rights. But all through the lens of thinking about equality within the constitution as a foundational value and as a right, um, which is expanded on the difference between those um, in the book. And I found that a fascinating thing to think through. What does it mean for equality to be a foundational value but also a right, and why does that have to happen in tandem? But returning to what I was uh, what wanted to ask you about next, when you write about the book as a contribution, and I think that um, increasingly we're thinking through how do we cite, um, and I the first note that I had just in starting to read this book was the idea of thinking in community which feels like what this book is trying to do, to think in community with a range of other, um, not just writers, but a range of other women and a range of other um, thinkers, activists, um, who are engaged in the kinds of work that action and animate equality yeah. uh, daily on multiple levels and across class, across um, sexuality, across gender um, and across spheres of power. Mm. Um, was, what are your ideas around that idea of thinking in community? So I think 
I mean, there was a quote that many of us, I think, have used at some points in our lives where Audrey Lord says, um, there can be no single issue movement because we don't live single issue lives. And I thought about, I mean, that has been, she and her work has been a huge kind of influence on how I've thought about my work and how I've thought about as a journalist, as someone who has a platform, how do I use that to, you know, deal with issues of gender, um, economic, you know, economics, politics, um, you know, all of the things we know are connected and have an impact on our lives now, history. Because I think part of what this book does is it realizes, yes, we are in 2021, but there is a long there's a long history that brings us right. to where we are, right? So women in court, like Mama Mary Rahube, who I referred to in the land chapter, who is probably still going to have to go to court. I think she's about to be in her late 70s to try prevent the loss of her home. There's a historical reason for that because historically mm-hmm. women didn't have um, legal status. You could never become an adult as a woman. You were a perpetual minor, either under your father or then later under your husband, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and and just coming back to that Audrey Lord quote, part of what she says is, we can use what people have done before us as signposts. We can take what Malcolm X did, what, and she refers specifically to Malcolm X because she was reflecting on his work. And she says, you know, even Malcolm X in the latter part of his life reflects on the similarities between him and Dr. King, right? Dr. King later in his life reflects on you know, his, you know, his, and I refer to this, the letter to from the Birmingham prison, where he talks about, you know, we are all tied together in this kind of fabric of destiny. What happens to one person at some point will have an impact on us. Mm. I thought that was so interesting how she says we can use previous knowledge as signposts. So we don't have to make the same mistake. So we don't have to kind of, that isn't the limit of what we can do or how we can think or how we can be and I think it's so interesting that we can just like we can keep building and so when I thought about this book there was this and it's great for me I was really lucky there are decades of scholarship and work and activism and thought and practice that I could lean on that I could refer to and think about okay so what does this mean so if we're thinking how do we learn from the black consciousness movement because they did a great deal of work, like how can we use that as something to learn from? How do we use Bell Hooks and Lord and Professor Pumlakola and Nozizo Matlala Routledge and the work of people like Dr. Kaleng Mufugeng, Advocate Brenda Majibo Matumise, Koketsumwedi, all of the people I refer to in the book. How do we use, how do I use their work and their contributions as signposts? And then hopefully this book, to use kind of the metaphor Audre Lord uses, this becomes another signpost. So there was a great deal, and even in writing the book, I referred to people who are doing the work. Uh, Umam Yunis Ladla, who's been a, a unionist for domestic workers for pretty much as long as I've been alive, since the 70s, so longer than I've been alive. She was mm-hmm. the person to speak to about what does it mean to be a domestic worker right now? When yes. I wanted to figure out what is equality, this value that we love so much, that is so dear to all of us, especially in the South African context. Mm-hmm. Uh, Advocate Dumisan Zebeza, Brady, was the perfect person because, you know, he has spent the better part of his life pre-apartheid, post-apartheid, fighting for this value. So even in writing this book, there was, 
I referred to a community because there are people doing the work, people who have the knowledge, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, especially if you look at the world right now, it can feel a bit like you are isolated, you are alone. Um, how do you begin to make sense of your own thoughts, the things you want to say, the world? And while we don't have all the answers, I think one of the great benefits of writing this book has been realizing that there's a reason why, for instance, the Black Consciousness Movement, the Black Panthers, were so big on community. Community Mm -hmm. is actually the thing that saves us. It will be the thing that will liberate us. It is the thing that keeps, that raised so many of us, that put us through school. And so there is a sense of, I really, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it became very clear once I started working through the book that community, either from the people we are learning from, people we refer to, people who've done the work, is almost, it's an integral part of the work, of being free, of being, you know, of the society where women have equality, have, you know, and so, yeah, so there is a, a part of it is kind of a conversation of me and the community of experts and people with insights, of activists, of um, the writers, the people who've done the research, which kind of built this book. Um, without them, there actually wouldn't be this book because everyone has been a signpost of sorts. So that's kind of like the long answer of so much of this book is about how women have built community throughout history and how even now, even in writing a book, you need community, you need your friends, your family, you need scholars, you need activists, you need proofreaders, you need people to, you know, look at this thing and go, did you think about that? Did you, you know, and that is what this book has been for me. It's like community is so important and it exists because I think capitalism isolates us. We are isolated from our family. We are isolated from our friends. The last year we've been isolated from you know, the very things that kind of keep us, that make community, our rituals, our people. But in spite of all of that, I think the thing that has kept us together is community. And so, yeah, that is definitely like a big part of this book. And it didn't occur to me until I think afterwards that, okay, this is is one of the things, this is how we get free. Um, Community is quite a big part of it. And I'm so glad because I've drawn on decades of work and I'm really grateful for it because otherwise I don't think I would have even been able to think about the book. Mm-hmm. And I and I loved that you you led us to that Audrey Lord quote because it's something that I wanted us to talk about. Um, and I want to read it and your commentary on it because I think it's really, really important. So commenting on Malcolm X, she says for we must move not for we must move against not only those forces which dehumanize us from the outside but also against those oppressive values which have been forced which we have been forced to take into ourselves through examining the combination of our triumphs and errors we can examine the dangers of an incomplete vision not to condemn that vision but to alter it construct templates for possible futures and focus our rage for change upon our enemies rather than upon each other. And then you say, Lord's reflection on Malcolm X's own learnings later in life 
how we needn't repeat the mistakes of the people who came before us, and how we can use their teachings and learnings to take us even further than they were able to go as instructors. Mm. I loved that idea, that idea that, you, that you've spoken about here as building on, as signposting, as what she speaks about as incomplete vision. Mm. Um, and I really, there's something interesting in the way that she says not to condemn that vision, but to alter it, yeah. which feels like a different kind of critical consciousness. Yeah. Um, that, that is to say we can and we must do more and do better and do differently. Um, and I think that you said something in your answer to my pre previous question that I found interesting where you were speaking about the book not having all the answers. And I've been thinking um, deeply about our expectation um, about the movement into the simple movement from question to answer as mm -hmm. if we don't need to more fully understand the question. And I think you are the person who is always saying we must ask better questions. Um, <laughs> I, think said that, I think you've said that in our, in our um, conversations at some point. Um, but I, you know, as I'm trying to write at some point, I'm, I'm always thinking about how can we at certain points not simply expect an answer or despair when an answer doesn't arrive, but rather interrogate a question more fully and open it up and sit with it in different kinds of ways, hoping that in that process, we begin to move more closely or more closer to an answer yeah. than that idea of expecting like a movement from A to B. Yeah, so I think, I, and I think part of what I've tried to do throughout my career, which I think I also tried to bring to the book is especially for a country like South Africa, I think I say this a lot, South Africa is a complicated country. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with how complicated our history was, right? So for instance, if you look at, um, and I say this all the time, if you look at what apartheid did to, to use the black consciousness um, definition of black, of people who are politically black, so people we would now describe as black, Indian, colored. Um, it fractured not only white people, it created this hierarchy between people who were white and what the state considered non-white, but it even fractured and created hierarchies within those communities. So mm -hmm. for instance, within blackness, there were hierarchies based on geography. So the idea of the Bandustan, the creation of these ethnicities, which the state argued were so fundamentally different that you could only live with people who spoke the same language as you, right? In, a, in addition to saying there is white and there is everyone else, even among the, and I put this in inverted commas, everyone who was designated not white, it, it differentiated us. So Indian people, colored people, black people were conceived of as so fundamentally different that even if we were to some in some way within those groups find a way to find each other, we would still need to find a way to find each other's politically black people, the you know, the oppressed, right? And so 
South Africa, then you have to think about, so what, what are the things that make this country so complex? What are the things that are, what are the kind of the nuances we must think about? So when we think about land, yes, we agree land reform is an urgent need, but women experience land in a very different way. And we're not going to get land reform right if we don't apply the gendered lens. It was the thing the TRC learned, right? So the TRC is created, the TRC attempts to begin its work of figuring out what happened between 1960 and the end of apartheid. And even yeah. once they start doing that, the TRC itself learns, we can't do that without asking very specific questions about gender, because what started coming out is that yeah. women had very specific experiences of apartheid. Um, you know, women in detention had very different experiences to their male counterparts. Um, land dispossession had a very particular influence on women. Women often were primary, well, secondary and then primary victims, right? And so I try to ask some of these questions. I don't know that I provide any answers, but I try to tease out these questions. If we agree that you know, patriarchal violence is a thing we must all be concerned with, then what does that mean about children's rights? Because it's part of the thing I write about as well. We yeah. must be concerned about children's rights. We cannot claim to be a justice, peace-loving society while we want to fight for the right to beat children. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So even for those of us who either identify as feminist or wanting to end any kind of inequality and violence, children, we must, we must put children in the center because if children cannot be considered human rather than, you know, children are considered extensions of their parents or, or, or you know, property of their parents, then we can't live in a free society in the same way women and girls are considered the property of their partners, their husbands, their fathers of society, right? And so, again, for a society like ours, the experiences of children become important. So we must ask that question. What kinds of lives are children living? Do they reflect what, what I, well, what many of us want. I do think some people, and I try and say this in the book, some people are invested in things as they are. Women without land, um, domestic workers being working poor, sex workers having to live on the margins of society, um, children not having full human rights. But for those of us who don't want that, we must think about these things. We must think about sex workers. We must think about domestic workers. We must think about young people. We must think about rural women, all of these and ask questions, okay, so what does freedom look like if you are a sex worker? What does equality look like if you are a domestic worker? What does peace look like if you are a child? What do all of these values mean if you are, and so in the hopes that, you know, so yeah, so I'm always saying let's ask better questions because I hope then it brings us to a point where we have more complicated conversations where we're able to say, okay, perhaps we need to do work here and then hopefully move in that, in that direction. 
And I think that's quite a long answer. (laughs) That's a great answer. And I think the value of this book is it's it's two-part. First, that it urges us to think, or three-part. First, it urges us to think um, and to think in dialogue with histories as a second part. And third, to think through a different kind of lens. Um, Because you speak of the gendered lens um, and as of gender as a critical lens to make sense Mm -hmm. um and i think that there's a there's a really great quote that that you have from prof uh, cheryl delaray where she says too often when we do not undertake specific actions to draw attention to the issues that affect women what happens is that men and experiences of men become the yardstick by which judgments are made and i think that is valuable for many different um reasons and and one of the the points that I hear you making and that I heard in your voice as I read it was when you said um when you said that to lose a gendered perspective of history robs us of the ability to make sense of the present but further to that says gendered lens is simply an accurate lens yeah and I heard you say that this is simply the truth it's not another way of truth making it's just the truth yeah in the same way you know when I was writing the chapter on the one in nine campaign and how we make sense of where we are in dealing with sexual violence which we know is a a, quite a big issue for us what you cannot get away from is the one in nine campaign was formed to support a woman who was queer and who was HIV positive and those things are important. And so when we think about, for instance, GBV, and the research tells us, for instance, even though I think it was a South African Medical Research Council paper, I stand to be corrected, that I was reading, that's it. People know that violence against lesbian, gay, trans, intersex, um, and queer people happens, but we don't talk about it. And there's, and why don't we talk about it? And we know why. It's because, you know, South Africa is a conservative, patriarchal, society and patriarchal violence manifests in, and we've seen in the last couple of weeks, the escalation of violence, including murders of people who are thought to be or who are lesbian, gay, trans, intersex, and or queer. Um, And so if we don't have, so, you know, when we speak of gender-based violence and we don't speak about, well, how does that manifest if you are queer or poor? you know, how do we then make sense of that? If we want to talk about the issues around land and housing and we don't talk about women, then how do then how do we talk about land? So how do we get to, if we don't talk about gender, about sexuality, how do we, how do we talk about the things at all? If we don't... If we don't. Yeah, it's like how, you know, the National Development Plan names Tandi. She yeah. is average South African who was born in poverty and most likely lives in poverty. And the first time she lives above the poverty line is if she lives long enough to receive a state pension, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why she was named Tandi, because then we need to think about, okay, if we are building whatever it is we are building, be it a movement or policy how how does Tandi fit into this? And they're very specific things that define Tandi. So if we're not doing all of that stuff, which I think was also part of why I wanted to write the book, because I was really frustrated, where I thought we can't talk about 
crime and the failures of policing without the lens of GBV. That's the perfect example. Mm -hmm. We can't talk about the need for decent work um, if we don't talk about domestic workers, because here is almost, I think it's a million people who are ultra, they're ultra low wage workers. They work, but they do not earn enough to live to themselves and their families out of poverty. So how can we talk about the need for decent work without talking about domestic workers, but also domestic workers are predominantly poor black women. So we must talk about the fact that they are poor, they are black. And mm-hmm. so, so, and it's, I, 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 I was like, we can't have the conversation. How do we build policy if we don't bring that lens in? Then who is it for? And I think I say that in uh, the, the chapter on sex workers is if policing cannot work for sex workers or the state cannot work for sex workers, then, then who is it for? If the state cannot deliver for half the population, then why do we have a state? Like why? Because that is the reason it exists, is to is to work for everyone, and that includes women and girls. That includes, you know, people who are in rural areas, people who are ultra-low wage workers, people who are et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. Sorry, my answers are very long. Feel at any point to answer because I think that I really expand and tease out the kinds of thinking that you were going through when writing the book and the many dimensions of answers that you provide or questions or provocations that you provide over eight distinct but connected chapters. And there was a sense, like even when I was reading, I was jumping from chapter to chapter along like, I mean, I always read like this, so I'm going to save this one because this one I want to read later, like it's going to be my final one or that kind of thing. And, and the book provides that ability to do so, but also is always reminding you of a chapter that has gone before or one that is yet to come. Yeah. Um, but there's something within your answer that I think is very important to point to, which is that you open the book um, with Brad D and speaking about equality and speaking about this incredible progressive constitution, but you're continually reminding us throughout the book, and I think um, it's a reminder that we need that South Africa is a very conservative country and historically has been shaped around different kinds of conservatism Mm -hmm. and that that plays out in different ways across these different sites. Um, whether we're thinking about land, whether we're thinking about sex work, whether we're thinking about reproductive rights, um, whether we're thinking about children's rights, there are different kinds of conservatisms that play out and that we must reckon with because having a really progressive constitution but being a really um, conservative society is a tension. Yeah, and I mean, this comes out quite clearly in, I think it is the chapter on um, sexual violence, because at, yeah. the, at the end of that chapter, I look at the issue around forced sterilizations, where mm-hmm. uh, predominantly poor women um, were went to a public health care facility, for many of them it was for antenatal care, 
and they were sterilized because the medical um, the healthcare workers decided they were going to sterilize those women. One woman was told because she was HIV positive that HIV positive women shouldn't have children and so she was sterilized. Another woman was told she wouldn't be given her C-section because uh, if she didn't get the sterilization. Um, and so, you know, there you see quite clearly, yes, you know, equality we all have this idea it is quite a lofty and it is a beautiful idea i love the idea of equality but the devil is in the detail what does equality mean if for instance a healthcare worker can decide you've had too many children or you shouldn't have children so i'm going to sterilize you what does equality mean when you can lose your home and your house because people believe women and girls shouldn't hold houses, they shouldn't own land, they shouldn't, you know, um, land is a thing given to men and boys by other men and boys, you know. And so this idea of equality was quite a, a thing that kept, was quite, I think, the guiding principle of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that also became clear once I, A, started looking at the women's hearings of the TRC, uh, because I wanted to look at those. Um, and also when I looked at, so what is this value of equality? And I'm so lucky to spend time with Advocate Dumi Sanzebeza, who, you know, spends time unpacking what this thing is. And I think one of the things we forget, I refer to the Constitution a lot, because one of the big things we know about the Constitution is it is prioritizes equality, but also non-racialism, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the other founding principles of this constitution is non-sexism. And so, yes, I think we've spent a great deal. I think we're not even done with most of the work we need to do around dealing with that value of non-racialism. But just as important is non-sexism, because the, the, the crafters of the constitution realized in as much as apartheid was a white supremacist system, it was also very clearly the patriarchal system. It was, you almost can't have the one without the other. And so that's why, you know, you may not discriminate on the basis of gender. We even say you may not discriminate on the basis of pregnancy, right? Because we understand that when you discriminate on the basis of gender, often it will involve pregnancy. And so equality and this idea of, so what does it mean, becomes almost a thread throughout the book of Yes, we, we say we love equality. Yes, we value it. But what is it really, what is it? What does it look like? If we are to make it real, and I say this a lot, to make real the constitution, what do we need to do? So if we look at land, here's, what, here's some of what we need to do. If we look at uh, gender-based violence, here's some of what we need to do. Because also the book isn't, it's not an exhaustive, it doesn't look at absolutely everything, but it gives a sense of, okay, if we agree that this is what we want to do, this is what this is the kind of society we want to live in, here's what needs to be done. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I went off on a tangent about the, the value of equality and why it is so important and how it becomes like this. It, it, for me, it's almost like this guiding light, like a... You know, I I love, I really love the idea of equality, of of freedom, 
And I can tell that you do because you light up every time you speak about it. But we were speaking about, so um, I'd asked a question about um, our conservatism versus mm -hmm. the Progressive Constitution, which you did answer. But I think that, you know, there was something in your answer that whether we're talking about the NDP or whether you're talking about land, domestic work, sex work in and more and still more in the in the book. Um, this sentence from the chapter about domestic work really, really holds where you were saying discrimination against domestic workers amounts to discrimination against poor black women. Mm -hmm. And that is a refrain that repeatedly comes back, whether we're speaking about um, the right to um, be in urban spaces or to access housing um, or to, you know, receive um, care. All these different things yeah. bring us back to that amounts to discrimination against poor black women. And it feels like an insistent reminder that that echoes throughout the book. Yeah. Um, and that that shows up in all of these different ways, whether you're speaking about how 6% of the labor force then gets excluded from COVID relief because as domestic workers were and had to organize for. So you're not only speaking about um, things that people would regard as, as the past and not the recent past, but like really historical. You're speaking about judgments from 2018. You're speaking about COVID grants from 2020. You're yeah. showing how the present bears not only the trace of the past, but that absolute reality when we're talking about someone who's just about to go to um, court and has in this about to turn 70 to make sure that she can live in the house she's lived in for 40 years. Yeah, so what becomes quite obvious is obviously there is the past and the Federation of South African Women saying women should be given the same socioeconomic and legal status as men. And this is in the 1950s. What becomes very obvious is a, why they were making that demand, but also this long shadow of, so if we don't, if you don't fix that, right, if you do not ensure that women have, you know, and even like the idea of equality is so, it's not even like, we're not, we're not hitting it out of the park. People aren't necessarily, you know, um, kind of at their best. We really are just, you know, it's like it's a prefix, right? If you don't do that, so what does it mean? So there is a reason historically why domestic workers are paid as poorly as they are, and it is historical. But what does that mean right now? You see it in real time. There's a reason why especially black women are impoverished, and it is directly linked to women not being able to hold land, women being denied access to land, women being paid less than men. Um, violence has a direct um, I was reading, I think it was the UN's um, report on housing, and it makes the connection that, you know, women's safety is directly linked to their ability to have safe housing, safe, affordable housing. And for our country, where we know gender-based violence is what it is, um, it used to be, we used to say one in nine rapes is reported, and this was from a study in 2002. Recent research suggests that that number is one in 25 right, which is horrifying. And, and there's a direct link between gender-based violence and 
housing or a lack of housing. Because if women cannot leave abusive situations, because if you leave an abusive situation, you are homeless, you are indigent, right? And so there's this very clear connection between the history we kind of think about or the history we talk about and what is happening right now. Um, the, the idea that women are perpetual minors is a relic from history um, that men across races, across class demographics were very happy to kind of take on, to say, yes, women shouldn't be allowed to own land. And you see the consequences. Now there is a direct correlation between levels of poverty and women's at, well, lack of access to, to land. Um, there's a direct correlation between levels of gender-based violence um, and a lack of access to housing and land. Um, conservatism and, you know, and ideas of women can be forcefully sterilized. Um, children are the property of their parents. Women are the property of their families. And so you see very clearly how history is almost a continuous thing. Um, mm -hmm. It's the thing I think Advocate Dumisandzele, as I said, you know, society becomes a product of its history, but at some point you must do something different. In the same way we thought, what if equality was something everyone could enjoy? What if that is a thing we believe should be universal? What if we believe the right to healthcare is a thing that should be universal? What if we believe, you know, a right to education, a right to not be discriminated against directly and indirectly, which I think is quite important. Mm -hmm. Our conversation is quite clear, directly and indirectly. And also, not just that the state is bound by all of these great laws, but that we are too. are too, which I thought was really important. I think we all agree the work the state must do, but there's an equal amount of work, all of the things the state must do to, you know, around advancing equality, we must do as well. You can't discriminate on the basis of gender or sexual orientation or religion or race or pregnancy or, you know, um, and the constitution is quite clear. You know, it just binds the state and natural persons. And I say in the book, that means us. So that, that means you and me. Yeah. I loved that distinction because I think that that, um, especially when dialoguing these ideas about equality, it takes us in a different direction about where accountability lies, mm. because it is very easy to place it outside of ourselves, rather than as you are doing now, and as the constitution does, as Audre Lorde encourages us to, encourages us to do, to look at our participation in, um, in it too, because you say later in um, the chapter, in chapter eight, thinking about student politics, that systems of power and dominance reproduce themselves mm. in all of us. And I think that's valuable, but I want to turn us in a different direction um, because that, so I was reading this book called uh, What I Know About Art by Kimberly Drew. And in the beginning of it, um, they in, encourage people who are reading the book to every single time they come across, or we come across um, a name of an artist we don't know to write it down um, and to go and look up the artist later. And there's a way that um, I think it would be valuable for everybody to do that with this book too, because you're dealing with such immense sites of erasure um, that are so immense that they're confounding when you, especially this emerges um, 
in the the black consciousness uh, chapter when you're talking about Mawini Kwarit. Um, and that's astonishing. So you have the first black woman to lead a political organization in 1972. Um, and it's a name that so many of us, I imagine, um, or that I in particular hadn't come across. Yeah. Uh, and when you're speaking even about the Federation of South African Women, you devote pages to just biography. Yeah. Um, with, and when you're speaking about who was killed in a protest or who um, was instrumental in organizing June 16th, with, which we just um, commemorated yesterday, you are, you name everyone. And it feels like their naming was a very critical and biography was a very critical archiving and important practice for you in this book. And I'd really like you to speak about that more. Yeah, so I think once I, and even I think it started with the Federation of South African Women chapter, A, just getting into the work of the chapter, it became obvious how many, A, how we didn't realize how much work they did, um, the immense work that they'd done organizing even long before the march, um, and even you know, once I started with the Federation of South African Women, it became very obvious that women had, there'd been other work around past demonstrations um, prior to 1956. So yes. in 1912, um, Charlotte Makake and the women of Bloemfontein lead what is recorded as one of the earliest anti-past demonstrations, right? Mm -hmm. And between 1913 um, and 1956, women were involved in different kinds of past demonstrations in different kinds, uh, different parts of the country, like um, Josie um, Palmer. Uh, mm -hmm. She was one of the people who was organizing uh, in, the in the former Transvaal around passes, around um, you know, resisting uh, the application of passes. So it became very obvious as I was writing this book is there were so many women who were, who existed, who did the work, but we just didn't, we don't name them enough or we don't spend enough time on the work that they did. So I wanted to, for instance, name the steering committee of the Federation of South African Women, because I think it is important who were these women. It was important mm -hmm. that I name um, uh, Mamcho Zimpama because she was quite critical in how women were organizing against passes, you know, throughout the century. Mewini uh, Khware, when I read her story, you know, for many of us, when we think of black consciousness, especially those of us who've now, who've decided or we are aware that we must be engaged, BC resonates with our politics, whether we're looking at Palestine or Zimbabwe or Nigeria or Myanmar or wherever, we are resonating with the work of BC. And when we think of BC, you know, you think of Steve Biko, you think of you think of Dr. Mampele Rampele, but very often do you think of Mewini Khwari. Mm -hmm. And yet she served for a very short amount of time, but I think naming her was important. And also naming, you know, I go and name um, Sam Moodley, who was mm -hmm. also a woman in black consciousness. Um, I had a wonderful, just edifying conversation with Mamukhaw Demulefe, who served in black consciousness and the BCP. And at some point she wanted to start a women's charter, which I thought was so interesting. Um, you know, there's always been this idea that B 
BC was always black first, the idea that you are black first before anything else. But in just my conversation with uh, Mahauda, it was obvious that there were women who were thinking, yes, we resonate and we agree with BC, but there is a need to pronounce on gender. And so I thought it was it was such an honor for me to be able to name names. Um, you know, I name Dr. Beverly Dizzi in the chapter in on uh, the One in Nine campaign, because again, I think Dr. Beverly Dizzi is so important. Um, and so, yeah, there was very deliberate, you know, I, I named Mamsbongilem Kabela, who was the only woman in um, the, the 11 who were arrested for um, organizing the June 16, 1976 protest. She was the only young woman. And I think that's important that, you know, we do know the name Mamsbongilem Kabela, Mwinihwari, Mamukhauta Melife, the women of Duncan Village. I speak to Dr. Lengi Wendlobu about this was one of the biggest protests that were organized during the divide yes. campaign. Yes. And it was organized by Omama Bamunyan, a woman of the um, Methodist church. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to say, yes, there was all of this work happening, but these are just some of the names which we must know. We must know Sbongilam Kabela. We must know Winihwari. We must, and we must say, those names. You know, when you think of BC, I want, and as much as people think of Steve Biko, who was a, a giant of Unkhubo I want them to think of Mewi Nihwari as well. You know, when we think of June 16, I want Mams Bongile, because I think that is important. When we think of the Defiance campaign, we think of Duncan Village and the women of Duncan Village, because I think that's part of how I think it's important, especially for young women, for those of us looking to make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to know that there were other people before you. Because again, I guess we sometimes feel very isolated. Where, who are my, who, and they are, the women are there. Mom Eunice Lala, for me, was another name that was so important to name. Because here's a woman who's dedicated her life to fighting for domestic workers. So... Yes. Part of it was about that, to kind of name the names and hope that we begin to, and I mean, there were so many other names. This is just a, like a small snapshot of them, but that is absolutely important. And I think especially for us as young women who are thinking about the world, as we come from a long history, there are many other women who've, who've done this work and in whatever way they've done it, they exist and we must say, we must say their names. That in and of itself, I think, is important that we we acknowledge them and we name them. Mm-hmm. And I think what strikes me as important as well is that not only do you name these names, but where you can, you read the work of these women, you interview them, and if that's not possible, you interview those who knew these women. And I think that that goes even further and and teaches us about something more than just naming. It teaches us about practices of archiving and practices of, of dialoguing. Um, because I think, you know, something that you've drawn our attention to and that um, you kind of close the book in, in is the spirit of intergenerational dialogue where you you speaking about the 2019 opinion piece by Mama Sophie Williams de Brain, 
Mm. where she was speaking about like is my work not done yet do I have to continue that did my work amount to nothing mm. um, and there was something immensely heartbreaking in that um and the, but there was something also edifying in in the way that you choose to end in the book and you know I I feel like we could go on for ages there's so much more that I want to ask you about um that I want to engage um you in um but i know that we don't have all the time in the world and i and i hope that everybody is going to go out and and buy this book for the very um researched dynamic exciting um enraging um and invitational ways that you encourage us to think these questions through with you um so thank you for this signpost itself um, but what I really loved is the way that you end the book, where you start by saying, I'd be lying if I said I didn't despair when writing this book and mm -hmm. going into this researching research material, which is in many instances profoundly harrowing because the story of women in South Africa is a harrowing story. Yeah. And in many cases, a story of multiple different sites of violences. But you remind us that that is not all there is because you turn at, at the end of the book to joy um, and you say, and I want to read it, you say in reading and interviewing for this book, in addition to rage, um, other obvious features of history I've tried to capture are joy, optimism, imagination, care, and building community. And you use a quote by Angela Davis in order to do that. Um, and I thought that that was a really, important point to end on which is reminding us that these things are always in tandem with everything else that you mention and that you draw attention to in the book um, and further to that when you're speaking about a study um so i'm going to return to angela davis's quote because i found it now where you say um where she says joy is a political emotion as well Imagination is a political process, and I love that. Mm -hmm. um, but you you look at this 2016 doctoral study from Hungary, which thinks about how democracy was backsliding because um, the, basically the, the emotion, anger, was turning into disgust. Yeah. And you remind us and, and, and say at the end of the book, we must remain engaged outraged, optimistic, and creative, but never allow ourselves to turn away from the processes that could help us make real a world that we imagine and deserve. And I just wanted to note this because I think that it is such a inspiring way to end the book, um, to end what is a very challenging um, read but what is also a very, um, and I think it's important to note, a very accessible read, because you've said this all in language that, that is so deeply invitational and understandable. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you why that turn to joy at the end and why that reminding of, of, of that to the reader? I think, so, oof. especially in the last year, so when I was writing the book, it was during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, we are still in it. 
Um, and there were so many parts of what I was reading and writing and making sense of that seemed as if we are not making the kind of progress we should be making. So speaking to the one in nine campaign and the one in nine campaign says the statistic is actually no longer one in nine, it's one in 25. And a couple of weeks ago, the police ministry announced the crime statistics and they said just over 9,000 people had been raped in the first, I think it was the quarter of 2021. And when I read that statistic, I remembered one in 25. So the 9,000 is the one in 25, right? And they were really, you know, Mum Unifad was saying to me in her work as a unionist, she spent many years as a domestic worker before becoming a unionist. She said, apartheid is alive and well in South African suburbs in the ways in which domestic workers are being treated um, in what they must endure as part of their experiences. And so there were just really parts of the book where my heart genuinely broke. But what was also quite obvious is at all times, even in light of this kind of despair, there's always been people who believed it can be better. So in the BCP, the Black Consciousness Convention is formed. It is an amalgamation of, you know, it was after the banning of the ANC and the PAC, the state had increased its repression of political um, activity. There was this big vacuum because the main parties had essentially been driven underground. And in spite of that, the Black Consciousness Convention emerges at great cost to themselves, but you had people like Mehware, Zutulele Sindi, who I speak to, Dr. Musibudi Mangena, who I also speak to, um, uh, and, you know, Sam Newley, the women of BC, imagined that at the height of apartheid, that things could be different. Things could be, they could be, we could be free. Um, the women of the Federation of South African Women in the 1950s imagined a world where women could have legal status, could own land, could have their own bank accounts, could be people, full people. And so I do think, you know, everything that we have now at some point was inconceivable, especially if you are, you know, a politically black person. Everything that we have at some point was I, inconceivable. You know, I write about my grand who owned this little piece of land in rural KZN, um, you know, an unmarried single black woman with like this little piece of land, which is inconceivable. And yet, you know, here we are. And so the things we imagine to be the next bit of work we must do, yes, they may seem difficult and hard, but they are possible. Even the point at which we are now at some point seemed impossible. You know, I think of Mama Sophie Dubrain. She marched to the union buildings in 1956. Um, and I imagine at some point they couldn't have imagined that we would be free, you know, in the sense that we are free now, as incomplete as it is. But here, you know, but here we are. And so I think, yes, there is immense sorrow and hardship and violence but there is also the opportunity, the thing we want and deserve can exist. And that's one of the things that I think I've thought about a lot, that the things that we want and deserve, being free, not being tolerated, not being free, the fullness of freedom is a possible thing. 
And I love that thought. It gives me, it really does, it lifts me um, when I feel as if, whew. and then real moments where I think, I don't know how we get out of here. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it is possible. It, it must be possible. And so I think we must never lose sight of that, that the thing we want and deserve is possible. And so imagination and joy and creativity, and as much as I think, you know, rage and deep thought and critical thought, those are as much things we must experience, I think. Mm-hmm. I love everything that you've just said. Um, and I want to, to, you know, end off by just saying thank you for imagining this book and creating it and having the courage to put it out into the world. I always, like I said earlier, it's, a, it's an immense act of bravery. Um, and I think that it's something I know I'll keep returning to. Please go and buy the book as well. Loan the book to people, share the book, because I think that it's, it's an immensely exciting and dynamic read. And I just want to say thank you to you for writing it and for your time today. For, sharing in what has been an immensely inspiring conversation and that I'm taking away the line, the things that we want and deserve can be real. Hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, everything that is was imagined first. And that includes, I think, our rights, our freedoms. We can have that. And I'm really, I must say, like, thank you for, I think you, have understood the book. And by that, I mean, you know, there were times where I was writing the book where I thought, does this make sense? Like, does this mean anything? And so there were, you know, and when I say understand, I mean that I have come across in a way that makes sense um, because that that was a real, especially given, you know, some of the things are quite complex because again, we live in a complex country. I thought, is this making sense? Does the significance why I've done this doesn't make sense and so it's really yeah it's just great and comforting to know that I've written sense the thing has made sense and that you have found yeah the signpost makes sense I I really appreciate that as well this has truly been an exciting conversation and I just can't wait for uh, more conversations about this book outside of, of this, for uh, more interviews, for more books from more people who are going to draw on, on this text as well. And I think that you invite that even in the introduction. 